Greetings, salutations, and a happy new year, fellow geeks and nerds. My name is Gareth, and this is the Geeks Journal podcast. As always, I'm joined by members of the collective. Please welcome Damien, Ollie, and Luke. Gentlemen, hello. How are you? Hello, very well. Hello. Happy New Year. Hello. To you. Happy New Year. So, uh, to kick things off, we've decided to uh, break into the 90s now, fresh decade, with one of Jim Carrey's earlier works, which is that of the 1994 comic book adaptation loosely i would say the mask now for those of you that haven't seen this uh this is probably going to be one of the more simpler movie plots that we've watched since we've started this um essentially uh, as i said this was released in 1994 and bank clerk stanley ipkiss who's played by jim carrey uh, discovers uh, an, a mysterious and ancient mask and wearing it turns him into a manic superhero with a big green face so guys with this film i think for most of us sorry damien i think most of us were just about hitting secondary school (laughs) some of us were already in secondary school for a while but what were your first experiences with this film had you watched this much before now had you watched it in school what uh uh, what was the uh what was the thing ollie let's let's start with you uh well I'm going to speculate and say, did we go to the cinema to see this? I was going to say that, actually, I'm, yeah. I'm, um, pre- I'm pretty sure in 94, it was probably one of our first cinema experiences together in our local town, for sure. Yeah, I do. Yeah, for me, this was... This is the the second movie that I've seen a number of times in the cinema. The first is probably The Dark Knight, which I think I saw about six times. Crikey. This I watched consistently at the Palace Cinema in Devizes, shout out, and I watched that probably four, maybe five times in the... I think it was in Devizes for about two, maybe three weeks. It was in there for a long time. It was a very popular film at that point, and it was selling very consistently and uh yeah i i watched it a large number of times <laughs> day what about what about yourself no i missed that at the cinema so it would have been tv premiere and i've seen it about four or five five times since oh yeah and luke firstly luke welcome back to the show mate it's good to have you back thank you it's all right it's great why did we back so when like when was your like when was the first time that that, that, that you had seen this film do you know what you, you all guys are talking i'm trying to wrap my brains when the first time i saw this i was a kid i remember being a kid watching this um i don't don't recall watching in the cinema so but like damien probably caught it on like the, the sort of the tv release maybe when i when i first watched it because you know, back in the day i wasn't buying vhs then and uh i know my parents wouldn't have bought it for me <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, it must have been like a TV release, maybe recorded off the TV. I have watched it numerous times. Obviously, the recent rewatch is the first time in quite a while, but it's still, you still remember everything from that film. So yes, yeah, absolutely. No, same as you. I like I haven't watched this for. I mean, I would say easily five years since I've watched it from start to finish. I might catch like ten minutes here and there, but this is like the first time that I've actually sat down and and, and consumed it in its entirety. Damien, as I think out of most of us, I think your comic and 
graphic novel lore and knowledge around it is probably a little bit greater than most of ours. Like, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this was this was Dark Horse Comics, wasn't it, that kicked this That's, off? Yeah, correct. I found out about, about the mask from the Dark Empire, Dark Horse comics that were out at the time. Yes. It had the checklist list in the back. But, um, yes, it's very, very loosely based on the Dark Horse comic. It was going to follow the source material originally being a horror film with the big head killer, as he's known, exacting revenge on whoever possesses the mask. And in fact, Stanley doesn't make it past the first half of the first volume as he's killed by his girlfriend and she becomes the mask for quite a bit of the first major story arc. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is a a very different concept to this incredibly lighter, Mm. I think, borderline family movie, really. This was made, but this was directed by, I think, Chuck Russell, I believe, was that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. Initially was meant to be based along the lines of the comics. And obviously he wanted to make a a horror story and sort of base it similar on the lines to uh, like Nightmare on Elm Street. But he was later inspired to hire uh, Carey Aftersea in some of his performances and then adapted the story to be more of a comedy. What was what we see? <laughs> I mean, you have to wonder what it would have been like if they went down that kind of yeah. that kind of route. Did Russell previously direct uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three? Didn't he? Yes. And I think that's why he was like in line for the the horror remake of The Mask. And yeah, to go down the more dark horse comic route, where yeah, he is just a, like a maniacal killer who like exacts revenge in the most bizarre mind-boggling ways like possible which we kind of see within the film but not to the extent of the comic book run and also as we'll get into the film unlike the start of the film stanley buys the mask as his girlfriend sees it in a shop and she wants it Okay, so it's yeah, so it's not like a, a discovery story and a <laughs> Harry Potter, Harry Potter, the one chooses you kind of scenario. It's, it's very much over a revenge story, and Loki has no involvement. There's no Norse mythology at all. I think they'd struggle to put him in now. I think Marvel would put some sort of injunction with the name to <laughs> to be used for anything. <laughs> Surely they can't. They can't stop using the word the name Loki. It's North Norse mythology. It's it's out there. It is. Well, I know he's a comic book character, but yeah, it's like you can't stop people using that that name. And he is the god of mischief. So obviously, if you wanted to use him, Marvel can't stop you. I'm sure, if you want a likeness of their character, then maybe they could. Um, but the name, yes. they've got no chance. The movie came out in 1994, which after doing some digging. You know, there was there was, I believe, quite a few things that came out for for Carey around that time. Yeah, it was a big year for Jim Carrey. I think I saw him in the cinema heck of a lot that year. You know, there was Ace Ventura and there was uh, yeah, Dumb and Dumber, which was the third film of that year, I think. Jim Carrey, he took the role as he was a mass cartoon fan fan as is Stanley, which plays into the, the scenes. Um, you've got the Tasmania cushion when he first becomes the mask. You've got the tornado, the romance scene in the park, 
is Pepe Le Pew. The death scene in the club that's drawn out, that's Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. And we've got um, the wolf from Tex Avery cartoons when he first sees Tina. And they also discovered when they cast him, as his face is so elastic and he can move his body in exaggerated ways, they save so much money on these special effects. And he even learned to talk with the big teeth in that was only, only supposed to be used in quiet scenes. Yeah, I remember reading something like that, and it, they, like between that and the makeup, it took like four hours to put on or something like that, something ridiculous. It's interesting you say about the, the, the Tex Avery cartoon, actually, that they use, because I remember, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the one that Stanley watches in the video in his apartment, I had that on VHS. I'm pretty sure that's actually at my parents' still somewhere. I remember that cartoon very, very vividly. Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned about the um, the special effects there. I believe they did save something like in the region of like a million dollars in budget, which could go into other places. Well, basically because of how yeah elastic Jim Carrey's face is and how manoeuvrable his body is, you know, how he could bounce around and perform. It, it saved a lot of money in um, in digital sequencing afterwards. I mean, it's also not the only saving they made. I mean, I, I mean, the effects and Carey's ability to me is unparalleled. I don't think there's ever really been anyone like him. I don't think there's ever really going to be anyone like him again. I think he is truly iconic, even though he would never really see himself like that. Especially now, I think like like, like where he is now in his lifestyle, he 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 doesn't like being seen like that. But I mean, the other saving as well was he got paid $450,000 for this film, which was a deal that was made before Ace Ventura came out. And of course, all of these films came out uh, roughly the same time. Ace Ventura did very well. They then struck a deal for Dumb and Dumber, and he shot up from $450,000 to, I think, about $7 million. He became like one of the hottest properties they had to offer in the in the mid-90s. It was, it was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and surprisingly they might have chosen to go with a sort of a cheaper um budget um sort of star but obviously also in line for the role was uh, matthew broderick and nick, nick cage so I wonder what the film would have been with those two starring instead <laughs> um but I, I say kerry nailed nailed his performance in this film and i can't see it being i can't see anyone else playing that character for this film agreed agreed i guess i would have a hard time seeing like ferris bueller play a role like this but nicholas cage I think the only way that would work is if they did a straight Dark Horse adaption. That dark, terrifying horror element to it, I think he would fit quite well. I don't think he would have really... I mean, I know he has done comedy and things like that, but I think his presence just doesn't really fit it. But when you look at certain things like other actors that came up for the role, I was reading that you have people like Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, Martin Short, uh, Mike Myers, John Ritter, Robin Williams. Keanu Reeves was apparently in line to play Stanley Ipkiss. I mean, I I, I, I can't see it personally, but goddamn, I would have gone broke watching that movie. I don't think any of those other names suggested has what Jim Carrey has. When I first watched this in the cinema, I was blown away by the physical comedy and the movements that reminded me of like Jerry Lewis and Buster mm. Keaton, giving it all, throwing everything into it and using 
like his body as a tool. These other actors that you've mentioned, you just can't picture it, can you? I mean, they can do voices, they can do physical comedy, but not to the extent of this Jim Carrey slapstick, which I don't think has ever really been seen since. No, I mean, this might be a slightly unpopular opinion to anyone listening, but I actually prefer Jim Carrey in... When it comes to physical comedy that he does, I prefer him in roles like this where he's actually playing someone vaguely normal. Uh, for for lack of a better word, obviously using the word normal is a horrible phrase these days, but ultimately it is, you know, as a, as a, as a regular human being, as depicted in The Mask, I think that's when he's at his strongest. Things like Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura and so forth are, are, are very good, they're very entertaining, but... I think there's just a bit more subtlety behind it when he's performing it in that sort of way. Again, like Buster Keaton, Jerry Lewis even to a degree as well. It was all these very subtle nuances for, for, for comedy that I think do get missed occasionally now. And actually, you have to imagine that this is what sells him to, well, is it Robert Zemeckis for doing The Grinch later on? Uh, Zemeckis was for the... Was he the Christmas Carol, I believe. Uh, it was Ron Howard. Ron for the Howard. Grinch. Yes, Ron Howard for The Grinch. But you can see there, there are elements used in The Grinch from The Mask. Like Kerry's understanding of like physical movement, of using prosthetics. So having that experience, I, I think, paid its dues for that film of The Grinch. Uh, he, is, he is very good in this film, I think. In, in in both in both steps, I'm not knocking his his over the top personas. I just think like occasionally his his comedy is strongest when he's just being Jim Carrey rather than Jim Carrey playing a character. Yeah, sure. But of course, we also have the introduction of Cameron Diaz, who has been in so much over the last thirty years. It feels scary to say, but ultimately, yes, this was her her first film. The new line, who basically produced this and released this. They didn't want her. They said, model, no acting experience at all. And Chuck Russell wanted to say so badly, he threatened to walk off if he couldn't cast her. See, this is crazy to me because, I mean, obviously I imagine that the studio wanted to go with someone that was more recognised. But I think for any faults or lack thereof on Diaz's part, I think she, I think she performs quite admirably in this. I think she deserves a much higher billing in this than she does. Like, she's rock bottom of that cast list. The idiot sidekick cop, Doyle, is cast higher than she is. It is ridiculous. To be honest, yeah, she, for her first film, she actually plays it really well. And is it, the fact is that she had to audition 12 times for this role before they gave it to her. God. Yeah, 12 times. And she only landed the role seven days before shooting began. Yeah. <laughs> So that's how crazy it was. Also, just on a side note, I believe that she was only noticed by chance just walking out of the modelling agency. It was only that I think the producers and the director were going in or leaving and they just happened to like pass each other. So it was only by happenstance that she got it. I, I don't believe she initially auditioned as such for it. Didn't something like that, I'm pretty sure that's how they found David Boreanaz to play Angel. Wasn't he like dog walking in Hollywood or something and someone just went, him? Well, they're both really good looking people, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm clearly in the wrong shtick. Apparently I should be walking more dogs. Who knew? It's too late for me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the third star of this show, I think, really boils down to the, to the effects used. 
I mean, even for a film that came out in 1994, I think this holds up really well. I think one thing, if anything, to take away from from rewatching this is that not once did I look at the graphics and just go, oh, that was a bit ropey. Like I have done in some films that have been made very recently. Because when you watch these films in HD or 4K, you do start to see some cracks appear. But you know, it's it's. I mean, that's. I mean, that's just me though. I mean, Luke, what do you think? Oh yeah, most definitely. I as I say with you, with my rewatch, it was like they have they have held up really well. It's subtly when they've used it. Obviously, you know, they use props for a lot of it as well. I think that's how I they they. I think they do hold up. Obviously, based on like all the cartoon references, it it just fits in quite well with the whole film. And mm. it's just yeah. You see, I had did I I didn't on my rewatch notice any ropey moments. I think what's really like useful for the film though is the type of effects and the type of animation that's used. It is so like Who Framed Roger Rabbit in that it is such a stark bit of um, imagery used. It's so polar opposite. It's not pretending to be realistic in its graphic interpretation. They are literally making Stanley Ipkiss into a Warner Brothers-esque cartoon, aren't they? So they have a lot of leeway with the kind of graphics that they can do. But that being said, there are some incredible moments. Like the first time you see him spin like the Tasmanian devil, there's like a thunderbolt in the background. And for like a brief moment, you see through his body and you see a skeleton. Yes. yeah. And it's just like, mm. that's that's so like Warner Brothers. It's so Tex Avery. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. And I think I think the animation, because of the style and for the nature of the film, holds up really well, really well. I think that, for me, is particularly, like, as, I, as I've as i grown older and watching it now, things that I know about the animations. Like, I'd grown up watching those anyway, but just stuff that I notice more the older that you get. Yeah. And I think the good thing with this film is that, much the same as with a lot of, like, Marvel films, and even with things like, new series like the mandalorian coming out and things like that if there's an overarching story which keeps people's interest but it's the little nods that you see along the way that will then make the like fans of the genre will go and see it but fans of everything that that is linked to will just go oh that's really cool and i think they do that very well with this i think there's lots of nice little nods to to warner brothers and to tex avery and to those animators that i think now don't really get as much love as they should. I think too much has kind of overtaken them now. Technology and the way that animation is done now, I think they just kind of get left to the curb a bit, which I, I, I think is is genuinely a bit of a tragedy. Our new line connected to Warner Brothers in any, any way. Because if not, they could have sued because this owes a massive debt, like Ollie said, to Who Frame from Roger Roger Abbott and Beetlejuice with the insane out there scenes that's a good question i don't know actually it's it's it but then again i guess it's like because i don't think new line's got any ties to to universal but they've got clint you know they're they're impersonating clint eastwood funny side side note actually yeah jim carrey i think his first role was in dirty harry the deadpool he plays a rock star junkie yes he does i'd forgotten about that Uh, one thing I did notice during some of the key scenes whilst Kerry adds the mask was when he's breaking the fourth wall and like more is interacting 
with the um, sort of towards the camera and looking at it and obviously portraying certain scenes from other films and stuff, mm, mm. Uh, which is quite cool. I don't know what they, I, I don't know what sort of film what, what they are, but yeah, there's obviously I know it's influenced, and I'm sure Ollie could help. Yeah, it's um, it's really I really like those bits because you do you see them very much by Bugs Bunny in particular, and possibly Daffy Duck, who were like Tex Avery's biggest creations, where. Bugs Bunny would always turn to the audience for like a bit of an inside joke with the audience. And you'd always see other members of the cast, let's say Foghorn Leghorn or something, just wondering what Bugs Bunny is up to. And there's a really good yeah. bit later in the film where the mask is receiving an Oscar and he turns to the audience <laughs> yes. and he does, we'll, we'll perhaps touch on it a bit later. He does this great reference to another famous actor, but the rest of the cast are just kind of standing there like mindlessly, like what are you doing? Who are you talking to? And I really, I really enjoy those bits in the film where he does, yeah, break the fourth wall and, and talk to the audience and just let you in on like the inside joke. I think it's really clever. So the film kicks off, like initially with 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 opening credits which and this orchestral music which to me came off very very like Danny Elfman slash Tim Burton Batman style to it it's, it is lovely to hear oh yeah and it's for me it's one of those soundtracks that when you hear it I instantly know it's the mask that's on so I don't even have to see this be watching it I just instantly know and like the other film is the intro for I for me it's always when I hear it is um the intro for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. When that starts, that that is like, I'm instantly just going, I know what film this is. <laughs> yeah. Without even seeing it, it's it's one of those things for me. It's 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 a really great opening, and a, and I'm not saying it's a carbon copy, but it's very close to it. Particularly like when it kind of like like fades from black into an outlook over Edge City, and that just kind of like sets the tone in itself. And of course, you see these scuba divers hammering in just just kind of like digging into something in the seabed which we find out is eventually is is where the mask is that's being hidden yeah this is a good precursor for what's going to happen in the film yeah we we see that there's some kind of like uh, drilling or cleaning up of the seabed and before you know it the music kind of twists and you do get this burton-esque danny elfman-esque sinister music and you can see the diver he's struggling to get into the case it's like well hang on Perhaps this case should not be opened. Yeah. And then there's then there's something that comes in on his telecom. Oh, hang on, we're sending down another pipe. Right. You know where this is going. And before you know it, I don't want to. I don't know what happens to the diver, but the pipe comes falling down, knocks knocks him out of the way, and then you see this wooden malevolent mask float up out of the seabed, and you just know it's cursed. It's bad luck straight off the bat and that's how the film's gonna go it's a good scene setting for sure like i never really considered until re-watching it like did that diver die dark isn't it like i think when i was younger i just considered oh yeah he got knocked out of the way or something like that and the and the and the master's just gonna float up wherever and i watched it again this time i don't know if i'm just getting older and a bit more depressed but i just watched it and just went holy shit did he die so hopefully not we hope that diver is alive and well yeah the feel of the film in itself i think it was i think it transfers very well i think it's quite a timeless piece i mean not so much to, well, not not so much timeless i think it's very much of a period but i think you could easily take away from the fact that it's not 
if it's not contemporary. Oh, yeah, yeah, most definitely. Obviously, been filmed in the 90s, you still see the influence of the decade there. But for me, I felt there's a, I can't remember which decade it was, but sort of the 20s or 30s feel to it. Mm. With like, you do see like a mixture of the older cars they've got going around, especially when he's the mask. Um, obviously, you've got the Art Deco Club, sort of the gangsters. They're wearing traditional clothing for the 90s. But how they're portrayed is more sort of nineteen, like proper gangster films you you'd have seen back in the day, um, and obviously Very same much. same with the suit as well. Yeah, it just it just had that feel to it. But I think they blended quite well because of the sort of the city it was in, and sort of the dark like dark tones of the the, the city. Yes, yeah, they play that they play that like nineteen. 19- 20s 30s 40s like organized crime yeah exactly glamorized gangster element very well in this i think i mean, I, I mean you mentioned about the suit it's interesting like like that yellow suit which is forever immortalized in this film is only on screen for about a grand total of five minutes it's on the cover it's in the big scene it's on it's five minutes total that's it and i always wanted that suit it was like i grew up just going it's like, that's a badass suit yeah, it's such a shame that that suit doesn't get much screen time. I mean, we first initially see it when he turns into the mask the first time. He wears like a red version of the suit. That that like that that actually always reminded me of a dressing gown for some reason. It never looked like a real coat to me. <laughs> I was going to say exactly the same thing. It's because it's got some embroidery on the front, which isn't typically the trademark of the Zoot suit which is that is that long overcoat with the high-waisted wide leg trousers i mm. it, it is it's become synonymous with this film now and this character and i i did do some brief reading and i believe the reference is is that it was a suit that his mother made him for his early stand-up career which as, as in what what was it was it the same suit I, or was it inspired by inspired that inspired by inspired by but the also the other interesting thing is is that edge city is you kind of get the impression it's a cross between like miami and los angeles it's a very dark and gritty side and the interesting thing is the zoot suit is um it's an illegal garment in los angeles because of its gang warfare affiliation is that right yeah it's worn a lot by mexican gangs i'm not sure when it was passed the law was passed but it still stands that yeah it is illegal to be wearing a zoot suit unless it is for comedic effect or to go to fancy dress unless it's unless you're fancy dressing as the mask in la on halloween (laughs) which is a crying shame because it is such a phenomenal outfit you know it, it it has such great presence to it and i think it's only amplified by jim carrey's movements you know the way that he uses the hat he uses the jacket and the way he just moves in those trousers. It becomes a character in itself. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. I, I think this is making a comeback. A friend of ours has a wedding, like lockdowns, oh. like permitting later on. I'm feeling it. I reckon I could put one together before then. <laughs> yeah, I need a new suit. I'm getting that. <laughs> so after all this, we we you know we, we like we meet Stanley for the first time. We meet Stanley Ipkiss, portrayed by Jim Carrey, and he's just he's just wet. Really, isn't he? I mean, he's not the he's not a particularly get up and go go after him kind of a guy. Is no, he? Um, I, I I feel it's a good setup for him. As you said earlier, he he's this um, normal guy, should I say. He comes. It's a nice guy. He's a loser, down on his luck. But I feel like it's a good setup for the show because when you see him as the mask, it's how they like revert his character, kind of 
what he wants to come out comes out. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that because in the books, it's a complete reversal. He's a complete git. Ha! Really? Yeah, complete and utter git. <laughs> see, I think I'd prefer to see that. I think I, th- I think as a journey, just see, like like someone being a bit of a dick. You know, you know, bringing it back to Scrooge, just kind of like like being a complete dick and being shown, no, this is how you should be, and then being like like taking the training wheels off and being like that yourself. With Stanley in this, it's the whole like, oh, I got those concert tickets, and he falls so badly for the thing. This woman, she has no friend. Like, he does the thing. I got these tickets that you wanted. We can go tomorrow night. And he said, oh yeah, but my girlfriend's in town. And I don't want to sitting at home alone. I'll just take your friend. Newsflash, Stanley. There's no friend. She's taking someone better than you. That's that's the only reason. Yeah, he is an absolute pushover, isn't he? He's just like what we class as like a wet drip. So when we get into it, him donning the mask does bring bring out his his alter ego. And it wasn't mm. until I watched it this time around that I did genuinely think, ah, oh, this is a very modern modern day ish jekyll and hyde remake isn't it you know because there is the love story with tina who we are about to be introduced to yes yeah in the most i think the most unsubtle way possible i think question mark (laughs) definitely (laughs) for me i think this is the only time i felt like the film was a bit dated wow that was the only moment that you thought the film was a bit dated the whole 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 objectification of women i would say but it's just it's the whole (laughs) she comes in all men stop look draw wolf whistle whatever that's all i can picture going off my head i mean let's be fair we would still do that let's be real about this (laughs) (laughs) we wouldn't do it with the camera rolling yes but don't get caught (laughs) (laughs) he says Recording a yeah. podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's. I, I mean, look, the thing is, and I'm going to swing back to what you were saying about the the film. You know, it could easily be transferred into the 20s or the 30s, and I think when you when you talked about the gangsters being portrayed a certain way, like from that period, and I think the same goes for someone like tina i think there is that uh, there is very much that transferable element from that period i think that's like, it almost feels like what they're trying to go for they're trying to go for this modern noir element to it and i think there's one thing that, that that diaz does very well in it is that she she plays this femme fatale in the in the film very well like she's not really even just a piece of meat at this point she's the one that's scouting out the bank for her boyfriend, which is played by Peter Green, who plays the character Dorian. Most people rem- will remember him for playing Zed in Pulp Fiction and Quentin Tarantino, which again, another film that came out in 1994. But I think the biggest question that I had from Diaz being in this scene is I don't quite understand how anyone at all didn't realise the what felt like a four-inch camera lens in the side of her purse. Like, that camera was massive. It had to be massive because it was wirelessly transmitting to a nightclub all the way downtown. And no one picked up on this fact. That's why they sent her in. Well, yes. <laughs> as as very well. And again, it is so objectified, that scene. But she plays it very well, as in the fact that that's what she is deliberately doing. It's not as though this misty-eyed dits has just walked into a bank just says that i don't know anything about numbers and they're there go and they're just just eyeing her up 
based on purely how she looks. She is a maniacal, evil piece of work. And I guess it goes for a lot of the characters in this film. It's it's a lot of overacting. I mean, yes, she she overacts in this scene. I think because that's her <laughs> her role to do so. She overacts to get the att- the attention of of Stanley and to be distracting. Whereas some of the and some of the other actors, Dorian, for example, is very hammy. But <laughs> but what it does do is it does add to yeah like the caricature of the character he's playing mm. and because it's based on animation anyway that works really well. Oh, he's the quintessential like lieutenant in this, isn't he? He what like like he's he's the gangster that wants to make a name for himself. He's the one. He's the young blood that wants to take over, and he does do that very well. But he de- but ag- ag- agreed, it is definitely dialed up to 11 in places yeah i think particularly when they're in the club later on but you mentioned about getting the attention of stanley let's also not forget stanley's very douchey best friend i don't know how they're best friends but charlie i think one thing that i totally forgot in this film but did make me laugh quite a bit was the contrast zoom like 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 from film work on this one the contrast zoom that they did on the two of them when Tina walked in and the camera pans up her and zooms into them and it does that pull back as well so it looks like the wall's going further away but it's going closer to them it is such a manipulative camera shot but it just it it just amused me i thought it was just it was one of those moments where just like yes i understand that this is incredibly objectifying but this is but that bit was actually very well timed and it did make me laugh quite a bit well it's a clever bit of filming isn't it because it's supposed to uh, significant signify signify even that she is like hypnotic and that they're in yes. this kind of like they're seduced by her instantly she, like they're under her spell and that's very clever that's a clever bit of filming you see it a few times in the film as well i mean it certainly worked for me hence why i probably saw it four times <laughs> i was just hypnotized from start to finish that was crazy yeah young blooded 12 year old <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, 1994, I was 11, I will have you know. Oh, 11. Were we 11? 11. Crikey. Well, incidentally, what was the rating for this film? Does anyone know? Uh, it was a PG. It was a PG, right. It was a PG, yeah. Yeah, because I hadn't seen Ace Ventura yet because it was a 12. Yeah, I think so. And so I hadn't quite worked up the balls to do that yet no we did that later. we did that later i think a couple years down the line yeah well i think the, I, th- I think the first one that we did that for i think was um mortal Kombat. Mortal. i think we were 13 and we snuck in to go and see mortal Kombat at the cinema was it, uh, as it was a 15 for anyone listening we didn't sneak in <laughs> yeah no it would have been it would have no we didn't no we didn't sneak in we did pay yeah we did but pay. we did we, we we snuck in in our minds in thinking are we going to get away yeah, with this i think we were really big and clever but no that was pro- <laughs> probably one of the first yeah films that we did first and not the last no no <laughs> but we'll we'll get into that in later episodes yeah <laughs> the uh the whole deal with this is that you know stanley and charlie are going to go to this this new opening nightclub called the Coco Bongo Club, and so Stanley needs to go and get his car back. And gentlemen, the garage that he goes to go and get his car from, name that location. Yeah. See, I was watching this. I was like, this has to be the interior for the actual Ghostbusters. 
headquarters. I was I was convinced it was. The outside is not hook and ladder. That's in New York, whereas this was filmed in LA. But I was convinced. I, I know the location of the stairwell, the fire pole. It's like, it's got to be. It's got to be. And indeed, it is. Yeah. The exterior is a fire station in LA, but it is the one, the only hook and ladder and a Ghostbusters is HQ. It's just unmistakable, isn't it? It's it like it it is just this iconic interior that everyone recognizes. Everyone always recognizes the outside. It's a beautiful building, but the interior of it, it doesn't matter what they do to it, you're always gonna recognize it. In this big trouble in little China it like it it's such an iconic I, I don't know if it's those doors but you're always gonna like pick up on that it's just such a great building so we get to the coco bongo club and this for me i think this film introduced me to an array of of different styles of music that i hadn't listened to before at an early age so the like this particular scene kicks off with a song called straight up which is by the brian setzer orchestra and i've been listening to the brian setzer orchestra for many years now i heard him in that i had the soundtrack on cassette i think it's actually in a box in the garage but that soundtrack is actually very good you've got all sorts of people in that you've got brian setzer you've got the royal crown review harry connie jr turns up in it bizarrely as a, as a, as a song on the soundtrack and yeah I, I, I just really got into listening to 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 big band and and and, and swing music like that through through this film i think another one that it played very heavily in, which was uh, Damien, which was a film that you put me on to because of my early love of, of, of Matthew Perry's work, which was uh, Tango. Free to Tango with uh, uh, Nev Campbell and Dylan McDermott. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which. And a young David Ramsey. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Dig- Diggle is in that film. <laughs> it's so bizarre to see. <laughs> Ollie, we mentioned about the physical comedy earlier. Like for me, I think part of the reason why I enjoyed Jim Carrey just being Jim Carrey in some cases is literally like just before he finds the mask, the car breaks down and it's everything that he does then. It's just like how he kicks the car, falls to the ground, the car falls apart and he reacts. It's just like it's it, like that's that's it's such a small thing, but that just really stands out for me. That's quite it takes quite a lot to do very little, but get a lot of payoff out of it. There's a, there's a really um, clever bit coming up, I think it is possibly, um, where Ipkiss is rushing around his apartment. He's looking for his car keys. They're nowhere to be found. So he he shouts to Milo, which is his dog, to find the keys. Milo finds the keys, but then won't let go. And there's this moment hmm. where they're tussling with each other. And it almost appears completely improvised that the keys just like, they fly off or they smack him in the face. And I think a similar... that's the frisbee. Ah. He's got the frisbee because he wants him to play with him. Yeah. So and then a... he lets go of the frisbee and smacks himself in the so, face. So there are moments throughout this entire film where, like, the genius of physical comedy is shown. And I think it's it's, it's, mm. it's all credit to Jim Carrey, I would say, rather than direction. And then we see Stanley have his transformation, as as we mentioned earlier, the CGI for this for me holds up. Like, I think that initial transformation is great. I'd actually forgotten how much of this film is actually very quotable, if you know the film. 
Like, there are so many, like, not just one-liners, there are so many little odd little sound bites and stuff like that that can be that have just been buzzing around in my head since. I do, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. And then he decides to, like, he, he doesn't want to wear this mask again. He knows that bad things are going to happen. But he wants to see Tina properly. So he's going to go to the club, and so he goes to rob the bank that he works in which seems like the dumbest idea ever yeah so this is where we also um find out that dorian and his like gang of heavies are also like wishing to pull off a job as well and it just happens to be robbing the same bank that stanley works at and that the mask is now about to rob but i just have to say that dorian's guys deserve to end up in trouble because they are so cocksure of themselves that they just run up to the front door where there's probably cameras without masks on, waving fully automatic machine guns. Again, like there was something about crime in the 20s and 30s that you didn't need like masks or anything like that. It was all done on reputation. Everyone knew who you were and knew what you did. And it seemed like the only way... Like John, John Mulaney... Uh, once did something in a stand-up where he said, it seemed as though the only thing that stopped the police getting to you was if they couldn't catch you. If they didn't catch you the first time and you got away, that was it. It was fair game. You just rob a bank, machine gun your name. Like, they knew who did the robbery. You machine gun your name into a wall and then just run away. And if they didn't catch you, then that was it. And it seems that they adopted this mentality in this film as well. Just kind of like, right, we're just going to get in, get out. If anyone sees our faces, it doesn't matter. Deserve to be shot. Absolutely. <laughs> Again, such a, such a quotable phrase. Well, sorry, fellas. Waste not one not. But just going back to those like quotable words, I, re- I remember for it must have been a year afterwards that we were probably quoting the P-A-R-T-Y because I got her for like... I remember... Mike must have said that constantly for about, yeah, six months. Yeah. And the, Easily at and school. The, <laughs> and the smoking line as well. But also doing the the jaw movement and the chattering of the teeth. Yes. I mean, it did it did become quite the, the thing of that year. So good. So we see Tina again in the club in the, in the nice bit when the mask turns up at the Coco Bongo Club. This time Stanley gets in. Pulls up a seat and he is watching Miss Tina Carlyle sing a song called G-Baby Ain't I Good To You, which isn't actually sung by Cameron Diaz. It's dubbed by a woman named Susan Boyd. It's it like it's a good song. And look, obviously, the reason why I was laughing when you said like it's like the one thing that stood out for you about objectification. I think this one is it just stands out like leaps and bounds of it. Again, it's in a it's in a homage it's in a tribute to that Tex Avery cartoon. It is something very similar which obviously plays out when they're doing the CGI of the of the wolf's head which he's watched from the video earlier. That, like it is like it is a very again femme fatale, very sexy, draws you in song, very well performed. And then we get we get the mask come in cuz now he wants to get involved. He wants literally to get his hands on Tina. He's been waiting for his moment and Stanley's overbearing subconscious is now going to go for it and he does that by transforming the band into effectively the royal crown review which is a a real band who sings the song hey pochuko which is the one that they dance to the really funny thing is is that the royal crown review is actually the band that stanley got the tickets to at the beginning of the film so i don't know if 
That was Stanley kind of making out, well, I missed the concert. I'm going to have my own right now. Even more impressive is the dancing. It's mostly Karen Diaz, apart from the more of advanced moves. You yeah. can tell any aerial shot isn't them. And obviously the, the fast swinging through the legs towards the end. Yes. Yeah, isn't yeah, yeah. Them. There's the... Yeah, there's the dragon lift that they do yeah. when the camera pans over them, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, that's a great shot, actually. That's a, that's a, that it's a it's a really it's a really well put together number, actually. It's really good. I mean, I I genuinely think it is a great sequence that entire that entire scene. I mean, you're completely suckered into it. You're in this like, as Luke said, like this 1920s, 1930s, like Miami esque Art Deco nightclub, and you're suckered in by Cameron Diaz and her, she's doing the gangster's mole kind of thing. Yeah. And you can see that Dorian's, he's quite excited by it. He loves it. So that ramps up the tension when Jim Carrey or Ipkiss turns up as the mask and tries to seduce her with this incredible like performance. And yeah, as, as Damien says, like I'm, I'm blown away that it was the pair of them because it is so convincing it's so good mm, is it is very good i mean the whole the whole overall scene that happens at the club i think is it, it is very good between their dance number and then of course you have the the facing off of the mask against dorian for the very first time because obviously the bank robbery's gone wrong his head guy is dead because of the gunfight with the police and he wants his money he wants the money that he had actually planned to steal which I think there's a very weird attitude to have because surely that's a first come first serve. But then again, one thing has just come to me: the guy that died wasn't his character named Doc. So the guy who died was Doc. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Everyone else survived, but Doc. Okay, you're screwed if you need medical cover now. <laughs> how did? And also, can we just take a moment? How did? How did they miss the very obvious pun of "What's up, Doc"? Why did that oh. not come into play at all? <laughs> No, just me. No. Okay. Just you. Okay. Just okay. You. Oh, right. wow! You should see the looks I'm getting right now, listeners. Jesus. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, Ollie, Luke, you were talking about the the fourth wall breaking earlier on, and I think this th- this particular scene, I think, is one of those. Really, I think the biggest one. Yeah, it in is. This. After he has like the initial confrontation with Dorian and one of his henchmen, where he's being shot at. about a million times the mask eventually takes a hit and he does this incredible like impersonation of like i'm not sure who it is i think it is bugs bunny initially and stumbles over to dorian and dies in his arms and it is a great it's 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 a hilarious but it's also a great performance and then you get this big breaking of the fourth wall where he gets handed an oscar a fake audience pop-up and he does this parody of of Sally Field, I believe, winning an Oscar. Yes. And I think it yeah. I guess it must have been for perhaps Forrest Gump, but I'm not sure. But it's, it's No, I think it was earlier than that. Was it earlier than I that? Think, yeah. But it's it's a genius bit of cinema and it's a it's a brilliant bit of story writing. And it works so well. I think it's really clever. I think it's very clever. I mean I think it amused me the most because not only do you see the mask addressing out there but you see dorian acknowledge the people that are watching yeah 
Because they start lowering their guns, they go like fix their hair and their jackets, and oh shit, I've got to like we got to cover ourselves up here a little bit. <laughs> and then he escapes. The police get involved and start investigating what's going on. And there's a bounty out on the mask. Dorian says that he'll pay fifty thousand dollars to anyone that can find him before the police arrest him. But then Tina starts getting involved, and I'm not sure at this point. Because she goes to see Stanley at the bank, and I don't know if she's seeing him because she wants to see the mask or if she wants a hand on the 50 grand. I've not been 100%. If honest, I'm still not 100% on it. See, I think there's a brief moment there where Tina perhaps, she possibly does know it's Stanley. There's something there, and she's trying to coax him out, maybe, or... You think? I mean, she's only met him once before. Well, that's the kind of the pace of this film, though, isn't it? That's but true. If we go yeah. back to when the mask was fighting Dorian, he's because um, he's obviously at the end of the dance, he's held her, he's kissed her, and they shoot the, his tie gets shot, and obviously then turns that turns back into the pajamas that he was wearing that the cops were him previously in. So that's how they said, "Oh, there's only yeah. one person in the city who can be wearing pajamas like this." Um, and said the name, so that's how I think she associated and went. Well, actually, I've met Stanley. I've met the mask, probably the same person that he knows who he is. So um, that, I assume that's that's why they obviously got together. Or she's gone and met, see him again so they can, she can find or talk. So it's really, it's really funny, actually, you mentioned about the pyjamas because there's one thing that jumped in my head when I was watching this and I've not been able to unthink it ever since, is that so Stanley was wearing those ridiculous pyjamas that the cops saw him in earlier on, right? A piece gets shot off it. He wakes up in bed holding the mask the following morning. And it's on the bed, so you imagine like he's just ripped the mask off and he's just flaked out completely. But that is not before he apparently got into new pyjamas <laughs> and then got into bed. Granted, as a plot point, because they'd be opening the door in the same pyjamas and the police would go, you're fucking nicked. But do, do you know what I mean? It was one of those things that's like, that's a really weird plot hole to have. Uh, yeah, it is. But I find it's what is an unscripted bit in the scene follows when he wakes up with the pajamas and the cops knock on the door, is when he um, goes to throw something in the um, cupboard, the mask in the cupboard next to the front door, and realizes when he pulls it, all the money falls out. So he's there with a frisbee scooping it up, and then yes. Milo the dog grabs hold of the frisbee, and that was all unscripted. Milo the dog was not meant to grab the frisbee; just meant to sit there. So he played along trying to scoop in with this, and again, it was like a bit of a tug of war with, with, with the dog. Um, but he just. There's the fact he pushes the dog yeah, yeah. into the cupboard <laughs> with the money. <laughs> he went along with it and just done, went with it, and it, it worked so well. But it's like, I felt sorry for that dog. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got the police are spying on him. They look like they're making sure that everything there. Tina has arranged with Stanley that she's going to meet the mask in the evening at this what it, landfill park. Yeah, Did they land. call it? Did I hear that right? The yeah. most horrific name for a place ever. Oh, spilled on the landfill, wasn't it? <laughs> It's built a landfill, yeah. There were a couple of things that I took from this scene that seemed very odd to me. One, and Ollie, this is might back up what you were saying about like maybe Tina does think that he's the mask a little. Maybe. There is literally like a split second. You couldn't fit a blink in that time between him going running away behind the bush, turning into the mask, and then he pokes out the other end. And at no point does Tina go, hmm, <laughs> that's fishy. It's like Clark Kent taking off his glasses. It's like like no one, like, at, at, at some point you get to a point where you go, how did no one get this before? It's literally just moving around from one point to the other. The other is, is that 
why are the police not freaked out by his powers? Like, they literally tell him freeze and ice attaches to his body. Again, in cartoon comedic element, but at no point are the police go, who the fuck is this guy? I mean, I think bits like that during the film become a little bit irrelevant because you are so sucked in by his capabilities and by the comedy that the mask, the character does, that you just he just kind of gets away with it. But I do know what you mean. It's like, why is no one freaked out by a green-faced... Yeah. <laughs> giant looney tune yeah i mean the green face is like one thing because again it's a mask but it was something where i just went there's a lot of weird like magical crap happening right now that no one seems freaked out about in the slightest no. yeah it's like when they're searching him and they empty his pocket <laughs> it's like it's like a tired artist his mary poppins style <laughs> yeah. bag pockets pulling out bazookas and stuff yeah. they actually cut the trousers in half <laughs> and the prop guys were handing up the props oh, really? as, as they were required of <laughs> course the, the, the photo of detective calloway's wife <laughs> oh, yeah. so i i actually wrote in my notes for the next bit because obviously after uh, after the mask runs away we are just about to hit another bit of the soundtrack which of course was the was was a song that they are actually performing in this which was Cuban Pete and in my notes I've just simply written um Cuban Pete dot 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 still a banger that's all I've written I think there was just something about this scene which has just always amused me I think you know I like I think it's a fun song but the, the producers wanted that cut they hated it it was only when test audiences said it was their probably their favorite scene they relented <laughs> see i i like this this scene i think it's really i think it's really clever because it does mm. it shows like his his greater power that he's able to like manipulate this this audience and what i did think when i watched it is that it actually reminded me of the scene of chris hemsworth in i thought exactly yeah, the same thing yeah, in, the, yeah. in the latest ghostbusters film i think it's such that was obviously such a parody of the mask, but credit to the test audience because I think it works really well. I think it's a, a really clever scene. Yeah, it's it, it's great. It's it's probably one of my favourites. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I I completely thought the same thing when I was watching that. I wondered if this was something that Paul Feig did deliberately. The difference with this, as some of you may realise, is that that didn't make it into the cinema version of the of the 2016 Ghostbusters. The studio got their wish that time, and it did get cut. But for anyone that watched it on, a, on the extended edition, people crap over that film. If you treat it separately away from Ghostbusters, I'm going to get on a pedestal now. If you treat it separately from the from from Ghostbusters one, two, whatever, and treat it as a separate film on its own, it is entertaining. And yeah, that's it. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. But that moment with Chris with Chris Hemsworth in that was very very funny. But the film goes on at such a pace. I think really, like, from this point, like, it doesn't let up. I think the film's got a pretty decent pace at the best of times anyway for something that's about, I think about an hour 40. It's got a really nice, a, a, a really nice um, pace to it. Yeah, it's interesting because you said at the, the beginning, there's not much of a storyline to this film by any, no. <laughs> by any stretch, but it's made up of some really, like, really good... Um, sequences which kind of they're not drawn out but draw out the film and the length of the film 
and that's mm. what makes it that's it's the performances within those scenes that string it all together but otherwise it would just be like a 20 minute film about stanley yeah. falling in love not getting into a club getting killed getting nearly killed yeah <laughs> that would be it i think i think we could probably talk for longer about the concept of this film than they could actually make the film to be honest yeah. <laughs> in the in the process of all of this stanley gets captured by dorian he gets stitched up by the journalist by peggy brant i think her name is she hands him over to dorian for the 50 grand and that's when dorian gets his hands on the mask and it was really funny like reading stuff about this because i found so many like comments and little blog articles online that genuinely could not comprehend that peter green was not the body of dorian wearing the mask they didn't realize that someone else was playing him and that just baffled me like this dude's like he's like he's he's, he's a pretty broad dude this guy called garrett sato i believe his name was I'm I'm going to be one of those people that fell for it. No, <laughs> I I don't think I really twigged. I just thought that it was really thick and heavy prosthetics, and that's why he looked so fair. That's why he looked so awkward. And when he was, especially when he was wearing a suit, it just looked really. It did just look uncomfortable. So I mean, that's all credit then to the team who did the prosthetics that made that mask look like an angry, aggravated version mm. of Dorian. I mean, the teeth are all like really like gnarled a bit, bit, bit gnarled and yeah. a bit jagged in that. It was, it was a, it was a good look for kind of the, the, the polar opposite of what Stanley is. And I think that, that like that came across very well in the makeup and the prosthetics. Yeah. And you're mentioning Peggy, the journalist, one of two deleted, scenes for this film would have taken it back to the horror roots. Dorian throws her into the printing press and she rolls out and the paper prints with her face all smashed, smashed up. The headline that's the night she died. Dang! Yeah. They only cut, they cut it as they wanted her in the sequel where she could redeem herself. Obviously, which never happened, and the holy, uh, hold, yeah, sorry, this, this, this is blowing my mind. They filmed this scene with Peggy. Yes, yeah, a deleted scene. Yeah. What? Yeah, this film, this film. I believe it's on DVD or Blu-ray. I can't remember which now. I have the DVD downstairs. Yeah. I'm gonna check that out yeah. because that is like compared to what they make the rest of the film. Mm. To keep that in, I understand why it was cut, but at the same time, it also makes me wonder, why did they film it in the first place? Like, that's not the concept of the film. That's just weird. That's interesting, but that's that's weird. During this time, he hands he hands Stanley over to the police with a green mask that does not look like the same green mask that they've been watching him with. These are the dumbest police officers ever. It's ridiculous. Like police academy. Oh, God. <laughs> Look, look, I tell you right now, even Commandant Lassab wouldn't have fallen for this shit. Ridiculous. Stanley needs to break out because Tina gets kidnapped by Dorian because he's going to blow up the Coco Bongo Club. And so Stanley breaks out, and this is all him now. He doesn't have the mask, he's got to use his wits, and he's got to get to it, and this is where he steps up and does what has to be done. And, I mean, the whole scene of that at the, at the, at the Coco Bongo when they're 
breaking the hostages out. Milo puts on the mask and stuff. There's just some... It's just crazy. I did enjoy... There was one song that I'd actually heard of before watching this film. And that was like in the in the charity ball at the club. There's the song uh, called, Heidi, uh, called Heidi Ho, which is by uh, a group called K7. And I know that because I had that song on a hundred percent dance volume four which i think on it's like one of the very first cds that i ever owned and that was like track two i don't know why i remember that but it was track two track one if you remember it was dupe do you remember that fucking song dupe (laughs) that was number one it was yeah that was on top of the pops for a number of weeks oh god 90s music who'd who'd have it again Drugs. Oh, oh <laughs> word! It's it like it is a great final scene. Again, the the CGI that's used for it. I think what they do with Milo with the dog putting the putting the CGI on it. I think that was actually very good. It can't have been easy because that's like one of the few times at that point that I had seen like half CGI on a dog or well, any animal for that matter. And so I would imagine like to 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 map that with the dog and keeping it so it would have been quite difficult. It works really well though. And then you see, you know, you see Jim Carrey doing his Clint Eastwood bit and being riddled with holes. I couldn't work out if the cocktail that sprays out of him after he's been shot, the whole did you miss me bit was a practical effect or not. I couldn't work out if it was CG, which is quite good. It's very clever, isn't it? I mean, I was just going to go back to the the whole Milo wearing the mask sequence. I think mm. by the time you reach this point of the film, you are prepared for anything to happen. So... The fact that you see a dog donning the mask and causing absolute hell in a nightclub doesn't seem mm. out of place. It really doesn't. And it adds to like the comic book nature, but also the comedic value of the film. Yeah. Because this, this whole last scene does go through it like an absolute rip-roaring pace. From the time he breaks into the club to the end of the film is mere, is mere minutes. Yeah. I've, I mean, this is a... a, a a true testament to the pace of the film that I eventually gave up pausing to write notes for various bits because I was pausing it so long. Like watching an hour and 40 film would have taken me about two and a half hours in the end because there's just so much that you could take out and write a a note down and stuff like that and little bits and pieces that happen. It's, it's, It's really well put together, but it goes along in a lick. Like one, th- like one thing that did make me chuckle with this scene is that the punt that when Tina tricks Dorian taking to take the mask off so that she can get quote unquote one last kiss and she kicks it out of his hand. Now for someone that has very limited mobility in their leg being tied to a fake palm tree, she punts that a hell of a distance. <laughs> like that goes far. And of course, Milo catches it. It's a great moment. It's a, it's 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 again. It's so. It's another yet incredibly manipulative scene. You have got the music building up and the flourish and things like that, and he catches it and just runs away. Well, that's a clever bit that was kind of like foreshadowed early in the film, where you see Ipkiss throwing the frisbee to Milo in the apartment. So you kind of know already that Milo's got some skills. Yes, there's a T-shirt there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think like after after Dorian gets <laughs> flushed down a cartoon plug hole, and the and the and the police get and the police take all the bad guys away. It's very the more you look back on it, it is such 
a simple film in premise and execution and right down to the fact that like all of this stuff happens and they just walk away the police have got enough evidence but the mayor just goes no dorian tyrell was the mask even though he looks like a completely different mask and nothing like was been on the news recently <laughs> we're gonna let him off let's let's throw this case out the window and just let them ride off into the sunset. And of course, that's when Stanley has the foresight. He needs to throw the mask away because he doesn't need it anymore. He's got the girl and it's on what's on the inside that counts, children. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, like in for, for films that we have watched so far, I think this is one of the few that has been better received critically than it has audience interesting which 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 took me by surprise a bit because yeah i was i was sifting through on on rotten tomatoes obviously other scoring sites are available and it was uh the overall at present is 77 percent from the critics which isn't bad no. it's a pretty average score but audiences rated it 68 percent which was a lot lower than I thought it was going to be. I wasn't expecting it to be like in the 90s or whatnot. I did expect it to be a bit higher than the critics. So if anything, I would have expected it to be the other way around. I thought critics would have scored it kind of like middle of the road. And like particular, particularly as, as Rotten Tomatoes wasn't around at the time that this was being done, there probably was a lot more kind of like nostalgia voting for it and things like that. But apparently not. However, at the time that it was released, it was incredibly well received for a movie that had a budget of $23 million. From the time that it was in the cinemas, it actually made a box office of $119,938,730 dollars. This movie, as far as summer of 1994 goes, was massive. And I was probably only responsible for about a tenth of that. <laughs> it was a small fraction. <laughs> so yes, The Mask was just under the $120 million mark, which... Actually, uh, as far as 1994 went, ranked it the eighth biggest box office movie that year. Crikey. Which I was, again, I was quite surprised by. I wasn't expecting it to be that high. In reverse order, from, from uh, seven to one, it got overtaken by Speed, Clear and Present Danger, The Flintstones, <laughs> The Santa Claus, True Lies, Forrest Gump, and number one in the box office that year was... The Lion King. Oh. But I think more surprisingly, films that it beat, like these are the tw top 20 films that I looked at, and from 20 to 9, we had Grumpy Old Men. Pulp Fiction was only the 19th biggest box office that year. Well, I suppose that was more. It was more picked up on on, on Sundance and the and the film festivals more than it was on 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 general cinema releases. Yeah. Uh, Wolf with Jack Nicholson. Love that film. Great. Great horror film. Star Trek Generations. Ace Ventura Pet Detective was number 16. And then the rest was Stargate, Philadelphia, The Client, Schindler's List, Maverick, Interview with a Vampire, and Mrs. Doubtfire. The mask beat all of them in the box office. Now, on a side note, I'm just going to say, did we have a very busy year at the cinema? Because if Stargate came out that year, we saw mm -hmm. it... I would definitely say we probably saw Generations at the cinema as well. Yeah, I mean that's a... yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, on that list, like I think I saw The Lion King a couple of times in the cinema. Likewise, I didn't see The Santa Claus. I think I saw that on video that's when it came out. The Tim Allen film, so isn't I, it? Yes. Yeah, saw that. Um, I saw Mrs. Doubtfire in the cinema. I didn't see Maverick until later when it came out on video. But I actually 
listeners, if you've never checked out Richard Donner's cowboy comedy Maverick with Mel Gibson, I highly recommend checking it out. It's a great film, it's a very strong cast, and yeah, 1993, 1994, worth checking out. But that's the film, really. And I think, for me, it's going to sound like a bit of an old one. I think this is probably going to be the first one that we've watched where I felt... I was very glad to rewatch it. I was very happy to rewatch it, but I don't think I got as much nostalgia out of it as I have done with various other films. To the extent that I think that I don't know if that means that this film has had its day in the sun. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I think with other films that we've spoken about, and that's in particular Masters of the Universe, I have a nostalgia with those with that film i have a fondness mm. for it where i've watched it so many times over the years it's it's uncountable but like you i haven't returned to the mask for quite some years probably not since i had it on vhs so, so the return watch was really enjoyable i'm glad we did it and mm. it, it, it was yeah a really enjoyable watch but just to say, I don't know how frequently I would return to it again in the future. Yeah. Would you recommend it to anyone if they haven't watched it before? Okay, so recommendation. I would, actually. Only because I think this is, along with like Ace Ventura, is a Jim Carrey defining a moment. Mm. He did a number of like films and bit parts leading up to this, but this 1994 saw him as like a big leading man and really did shine him in a great light and his capabilities as a performance actor in a great light so for that very reason i would say go and seek it out go seek jim carrey out because it is something something special about his performance in this i think it's definitely something that's worth looking at with regards to obviously you see him do a lot more uh, a lot more straight and critically defining roles as well with like things that I think gain more notoriety now, like Eternal Sunshine mm. and that sort of thing. So I think it's good to kind of see that development yeah. as a performer. I, th- I, th- I think that's very important to see like where things have, have come from, to see how they've gotten to where they are. I think for the nostalgia, is it because this is the first film we've done from the 90s? And it's not that far removed as some of the the others we've done. I don't think it's that. I think, like, really, I think for me, it's that it's as far as story goes, as far as the overall arc of the movie, it's quite a middling story. Like, there's not a lot that really jumps out at you. And I think in some respects, it's a fun concept, when you see that this could be transferred into a 1930s, 1940s setting. But it's also because the film, I don't think, can make up its mind as to what it wants to be. I think they, th- I think whether it's that the con- whether the producers thought that if they set it in the 40s, no one would be interested, but we'll set it contemporary and every engine can just be tinted to those sorts of periods. But I don't know whether it's like a few wires crossed or maybe I'm just getting a little too older and I'm just putting everything through too many different lenses rather than just taking it, which I do, on the face value of an entertaining movie. But in comparison to other films that we've watched, it doesn't 
have for me it doesn't maintain that fact of it's not something that i would go back to every couple of years like roadhouse or anything that i would watch every year like scrooge it doesn't have that that tie in my brain if that makes sense and so when you like the bit you know like the big one for me is that yes i saw this film in the cinema like four or five times easily it really captured me when i was a kid and it was great and the concept was fantastic the all that you get and you think it's like it's still a good film but there have been so many other better films since but that's just me i mean would you would you recommend it though dave basically like like from like from from what you've seen and, and, and what you've remembered oh, I, I would i would if someone just wants some to put a smile on their face and it's a distraction for for nearly two hours Hmm. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, yeah, it does hold hold up. But you're right. There are other films that stick in your mind to watch this and switch off. Get, get about. Yeah, it. that's fair. That's fair. Luke, how about yourself? Um, I'm trying to think of something to be different to you guys, but I kind of just agree with what you've all said. It it is an entertaining film. Mm. For me, there's no nostalgia. I said this iconic when I hear that injury music. I know it's the mask. It's got that that feel to it. There are key moments in this film. But I. I say I struggle to remember when I first watched this film. It doesn't remind me of anything of my past, like other other films do. I like like you said, Stargate came out that year. I remember when I first watching Stargate and was like instantly amazed because I big sci fi fan I am. I just loved it. But the mask, I was like, I can't remember. It's just like just it's just a blank feeling. But yes, I it's a film I would yeah. recommend. Um my partner, she does not like Jim Carrey. Um, so she won't like this film. Um, <laughs> so she didn't want to watch it with me. Um, but if you are a fan, um, then yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. It's, it's a good, it it will make you laugh. Hopefully make you laugh, I say. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good way. You can watch it and then forget about it. Uh, that's, that's the thing. It is, it is a bit forgettable though, apart from some key moments. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's only there's always like a handful of moments that stick out for me. Most of them revolve around like Carrie and Diaz. Yeah. And their relationship throughout the film and things that they do. But the overall film in itself, I mean, it's a shame because you do have some quite high caliber people in this. Like you know, Peter Green wasn't wet behind the ears when he made this. But again, you know, it's like I said before, you can only go along with the words that you're given and direction that you receive. And sometimes stuff like that happens and it is it's not that the film isn't worth watching i think it's like it is a good carry movie i think it's not it may sound a little odd i wouldn't class it as a typical jim carrey movie like when you think that ace ventura was the first one that we saw despite what the order that things have been agreed and contracts were done this that and the other ace ventura was the first one that was released so everything got tacked onto as oh that's jim carrey Despite all of the like, despite all of the sketch work and 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 stand up stuff that you'd done over the years, like that catapulted him into the public eye. So it then makes me wonder if it was the other way around. If we had what if the mask was released first and that got people's attention, would that have done more for his career? And I don't think it would have, because I think Ace Ventura is such a large character. The mask is great because it it is an entertaining film, but I wouldn't class it as like a a a typical jim carrey movie because when you deal with things like ace ventura and dumb and dumber and stuff like that even like me myself and irene to a degree they're elevated to like a substantial amount also the structure of this film just thinking about it is very different to that of 
Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber. That's a very cohesive film that has like a a start, a good plot and a finish. Whereas The Mask is made up of a series of scenes that just stand mm. alone, that kind of hold it together. I think that... He just finds himself in worse situations as he goes on, really, doesn't well, he? He just it. muddles his way through it. And I think that's what holds the film together and that's what makes the film. It's just a big, it's a vessel for Jim Carrey, wasn't it? It's like a feature-length cartoon. They've just Fair, yeah. put a load of cartoon episodes together and got boom, there you go. Yeah, agree. Well, I actually think that's a, a good point for us to stop this episode. Listeners, if you take one thing away from today, just remember that if you shake your maracas, make sure that you chick-chicky-boom, chick-chicky-boom, chick-chicky-boom. I just want to take a moment to say thank you to my co-hosts, Damien, Ollie, and Luke. Thank you, gentlemen, for taking the time out and joining me today. You're welcome. It's uh, been great. As always, welcome. Thanks for having us. I, I've broken Ollie with that line. <laughs> it was very hard not to laugh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. He's a big fan of taking his maracas. Yeah. Boom, chicky booms. But of course, the main thank you goes out to you listeners. So thank you out there for joining us. Uh, if you're liking what you're hearing, please leave a review, share the podcast to your fellow geeks and nerds out there if you feel so inclined. We're going to be back very soon, but in the meantime, you can follow us on social media at The Usual Haunts. Facebook, look for The Geeks Journal. Instagram is at The Geeks Journal. And Twitter is at Geeks Journal UK. Until next time. See ya!